I'm Dr. Michael Gervais, and this is Win the Day with James Whitaker. You're listening to Win the Day with James Whitaker. What we do in life echoes in eternity. Broadcasting from Los Angeles, California, this is the number one podcast to help you win the day every day. Here's your host, James Whitaker. Let's go. Welcome back to Win The Day. If this is your first time here, we sit down with some of the world's true change makers to give you all the tips, tools, and strategies to win the day every day. And boy, are you in for a treat today. The quote for this episode comes from Italian artist Michelangelo and says, if people knew how hard I worked to get my mastery, it wouldn't seem so wonderful at all. That's a hugely important quote because most people see the end result but don't recognize the discipline, the sacrifice, and the effort that goes into acquiring mastery. You've probably guessed the theme of today's episode already, and you'd be right. It's mastery, and we've got the best person in the world to show us exactly how to achieve it. Dr. Gervais is the world's leading expert on the relationship between the mind and elite performance. As a sport and performance psychologist, Dr. Gervais has spent his 20-year career with world-class performers and organizations in every field. Through this work, he's developed a framework for the mental skills and practices that allow athletes to thrive in pressure-packed environments. His clients include world record holders, Olympians, internationally acclaimed music artists, Fortune 50 CEOs, sporting organizations like the Seattle Seahawks, and MVPs from every major sport. In his spare time, Dr. DeVay is host of the Finding Mastery podcast that explores the psychology of the world's most extraordinary thinkers and doers. His awesome book, Compete to Create, helps people train their own mind for massive success. Dr. DeVay holds a PhD in psychology specializing in sport performance and a master's degree in kinesiology. There's nothing airy-fairy here. All his work is research-based and is the proven guide to elite performance. In this episode, we're going to talk about what the top 0.1% of the world's best performers do differently, how to achieve mastery in the home, why purpose beats goal setting, what the research says about the ideal morning routine, and how you can begin your journey to mastery right now. Dr. Gervais is a truly unique individual, and there is a ton of amazing stuff in this episode. Before we begin, remember that the right bit of inspiration can completely change the trajectory of someone's life. So if there's a friend or loved one who needs to hear this episode, share it with them right now. All right, let's win the day with Dr. Michael Gervais. Michael, it is great to see you, my friend. Thanks so much for coming on the Win The Day Show. Yeah, I'm stoked to be with you. Thank you for including me. Well, shout out to our legendary mutual friend, Dr. Michael Bruce, for connecting us. Michael Bruce is, of course, the sleep doctor from an earlier episode of the show. And Michael, congratulations to you on an amazing body of work. I'm excited to dive into all the the great things that you've been able to do and a lot of practical stuff, which I know you're big on both the research and the practical side today. But to to kick things off, I thought it might be great for you to uh, think about or to share with us. Is there a memory or a story that you recall from when you were younger that summarizes what your life was like growing up? Yeah. Um, thank you for, for that, for the compliment and the chance to share a memory. And I, you know, a little context before I share the memory or the story is that um, one, people love stories and we love listening to them, but you know what we love more? Our own stories. <laughs> so I share, I share that in full disclosure and context that I love my stories. <laughs> But I know that you're, you and your audience love your stories more. So I'll be brief, <laughs> but I will tell you a story. Um, 
And then the second layer of context is that uh, from a psychological perspective, one of the things that I would capture my younger years with was a, a very laissez-faire approach to parenting. So the, the rules were um, uh, more grounded in virtues and morals than it was anything else. And uh, performance was not an issue. It was not something that we spoke about in the family. It was more about, you know, kind of uh, roots, you know, and moral code, if you will. And so I'll tell you a story that summarizes actually two, two paths. One is um, how I got here. And the second is more about the family life. And so I'll start with the family life is that imagine uh, seven years old, um, eight years old, sorry, eight years old. And we had, uh, I grew up in Virginia, California, which I'm sorry, I grew up in Alexandria, a small town called Warrington in, Vir- in Virginia, the state. And uh, big backyard, running creek, uh, eight or nine years old in that range. And uh, I just knew that I had to be home by the time it got dark out. And so I was playing in the creek, which I, I mean, I think about my nine-year-old kid, like I'm not letting him play near water, <laughs> running water, <laughs> if you will. And it was a small creek, okay, but like still. And I was digging out uh, crawdads. <laughs> so like you, you could call me a hillbilly at some point and I would not be offended. <laughs> and so we're digging out crawdads in the mud. And I say, we, it was me. Um, you know, I'm up to my ankles in mud, up to my elbows in mud, trying to catch these crawdads and try to figure out their patterns. So I could, I could, and I didn't know what I was going to do with them, but it was just the thrill of being outside, being by myself, being in nature. Um, and I'm an introvert. I'm sorry. I'm an extrovert by trade, but there was something special about being in outdoors by myself. And so, um, when it got dark, I needed to start to hightail, you know, back home so that because there's no lights, there's no literally there's no street lights, there's no one around, and it's that type of environment. So I share that with you as a context that uh, really the rules were the rules of Mother Nature, and the moral code was the the, the code that my parents uh, were installing, if you will, or, or guiding me on. And then fast forward a handful of years, I get to California, and now I'm in um, uh, my teenage years, and. And so I picked up surfing and it ended up being the most significant sport that I played because it taught me so much. Again, back to mother nature, back to the real rules that nature would provide, not these artificial rules that, that humans provide, um, which you can tell I might have an opinion about some artificial <laughs> rules that, uh, that we live by. And so I'm surfing and there's two types of surfing. There's free surfing and there's competitive surfing and free surfing just for context is, um, it's being out in the wild and doing the thing. And there's like a code there amongst surfers, which is you don't talk about it. You just put yourself in a um, high-risk situation and uh, you do it. And if you make it, great. And you have the knowing of what it takes. And if you don't, well, you suffer some of those consequences you know, that come from <laughs> hold-unders or just you know, the, the whip from waves. So, and, and I'm not saying I was doing uh, big, heavy surf, but there was a core to it, if you will. And then the other type of surfing is competitive surfing, which I know you understand. And so competitive surfing, you know, there's judges, there's critics, there's people on the beach that are examining and actually giving you a score about how well you're doing. And I'm 15 years old. It is seven, eight in the morning, beautiful glass conditions out in the ocean. There's uh, two other surfers in the water with me. It's a competitive moment. And I didn't have a thing to offer. I could not do anything that I knew I was capable of. And this competitor paddled by me and he says, and he's older than me. And he says, Gervais, 
you got to stop worrying about all the things that could go wrong. Like, geez, dude, like get yourself together. You know, is what he was saying with his posture and he paddles off and the surf is about head high, super playful, great conditions, only a handful of people out and I'm a disaster. And so I sit there and I was like, how does he know what I'm thinking? And it was the beginnings of this fascination I came to appreciate about psychology because my physical nature didn't change. My technical nature didn't change. The only thing that changed was my mind, the way I was thinking. And so that was the beginnings of kind of this wake up that there was something I could do to be oh, less, less anxious. I didn't know there was such a word called anxiety. I didn't know there was a discipline, a science called psychology. So that was the beginnings of going, what is this thing that has constricted around me that I can't think right. I can't move right. And I'm not so sure that most people would notice, but he noticed, and I definitely knew. And so that was the beginnings of a path for me. It's interesting, isn't it? Thank you very much for sharing that. A lot of people know about books like Think and Grow Rich that talk about the power of the mind. And they think that the antithesis of Think and Grow Rich is remaining stagnant But just as you can think and grow rich, you can think and grow poor. And by working yourself up into a mental frenzy through things like that, it's it's really, uh, it's interesting, isn't it? The power of the mind. We can create, we literally create these circumstances and these stories that we that we tell ourselves. Yeah, that's exactly right. And my story was that I I could not um, I didn't have a proper threshold to manage what other people might be thinking of me. And so come full circle, you know, 20 some years later, working with some of the most extraordinary um, thinkers and doers on the planet is that they suffer from that too. And if they do it and I recognize it. And when I speak, you know, early in my career, when I, when I was getting my license and, you know, I was working with people that were not necessarily in elite performative environments, certainly not um, dangerous or high stakes, pressure packed environments, they had it too. And so there's this thing that we carry around in our modern DNA of our thinking patterns, certainly on the Western world, is like the great threat is what do they think of me? And it's unfortunate because it's such a constrictor, but at the same time, it offers a great opportunity for us to find freedom by exploring the suffering and the pain that we co-create within ourselves based on this magical idea of what somebody might be thinking of us. And if you've ever had the experience where you're going to, you're really excited to talk about something and you've got an opportunity to share it in front of 10 people or a thousand people, you know, an onstage moment and backstage, your heart is thumping. Like, what is that? You know, why does our heart and our breathing and our mind change when we're going to go to a party with friends? Like what happens when people look at us in a social setting and all of a sudden their gaze is on us as we're telling a story and all of a sudden we tighten up and our throat tightens and we lose the eloquence and the playfulness that is more grounded to the human we want to be. What happens there? And that was a fascinating um, internal expedition that I wanted to sort out. And so finding that freedom has been a big part of uh, not finding it, but exploring that freedom has been a big part of my adult life. 
you need to track down that surfer and say, look, see, now I'm, now I'm good at this. I've finally, <laughs> I finally made it. <laughs> well, he was right. He pointed it out. Like he was my greatest fear. You know, he was the one where he's like, hey, dude, you're a mess. Like, thank you very much. You're right. And so um, I want to thank him for pointing out, you know, Captain Obvious to me. So. Absolutely. And today you work with the elite of the elite in so many different fields. And what I love about your work is it's evidence-based. You're in the trenches on the research side, which is so amazing. And there are so many people out there who give so much advice, but don't have that grounding on the evidence-based side. What meeting of the, of the frontier and the laboratory makes you so excited nowadays? Oh, that's a cool question. It is that intersection that I'm most interested in. And there's there's things happening right now that we're paying attention to on uh, it's not necessarily new, but it is becoming more applied. There's um, the default mode network, which is a network in our brain that is chronically active. And that network is really a self-preserving network, which it's it's checking in with itself to see if it's okay. And so that's basically that fear of other people's opinion that I was talking about, like, am I okay? And we're finding ways to tap into that uh, to quiet that down. So imagine a world where you checked in to see if you were okay a little bit less. So there's some fun practices there that I'm interested in. There's also, um, we're in the, the, the cross section right now between applied psychology and applied technology. So it's a fun time right now because I think most people are pretty familiar with these I don't know, six years ago were phrases that were not used like heart rate variability, respiratory rate, you know, um, deep sleep, REM sleep. I think people now at at scale know the difference between REM sleep and deep sleep. And so we're finding that technology and psychology are in an interesting convergence, which is really an application opportunity for for many of us. So there's there's a couple there, you know. what else is happening in the laboratory? We're, we're going back in many routes to how our attention systems work to be optimized. And, be, and that's probably an outsprout from our attention is being pulled in so many different directions right now. And let's call it 12 to 15 years ago, uh, social media and technology got pretty advanced, very sophisticated, and they're on it. They hired bright minds engineers and bright mind psychologists to cook together ways to hook people's attention. So y- you and I are outmathed, are, are outflanked. You know, we really were out talented. Fifteen psychologists and fifteen engineers. It's more like one hundred fifty and one hundred fifty, or a thousand. You know, whatever, depending on the size of the company, they've got us. And so there's an outsprout right now of how to go back to take ownership of your attention. And w- what that means in an unsophisticated way is how do you attend to your internal world and how do you attend to the environment around you? And can we get better at both? And the reason that's so significant is where you place your attention is the downstream effect is a physical, physiological, chemical exchange that happens in the body. And when we go upstream and we focus well on what we want to focus on, the downstream performance aspects become much smoother. And so there's some good stuff happening there as well. 
Yeah, what's at stake there? I mean, these technology companies, it's its literally our life that's at stake. So we need to make sure we have a bit of urgency on wanting to be able to, to get things back on track from an attention perspective. You see people, every cafe and restaurant you go to, everyone's just staring down at a, at a phone. It's horrible. And you, you mentioned environment there. And there's a Marcus Aurelius quote, the happiness of your life depends on the quality of your thoughts. And for people who grow up, obviously, we know that our attention is getting manipulated now by these social media companies. So we have that on one hand. We also have people who have grown up in in many cases in some very difficult upbringings. A lot of people now, um, kids wearing masks at at school, um, not having the physical affection and a lot of connection, um, remote learning. There's a lot of these things that are happening right now. It's almost like this perfect storm for human development. How do we manipulate our environment and our circumstances to generate as many positive and productive and aligned thought impulses as we can? So it's a good question because there's so much change happening. And um, I would not know where to begin other than becoming aware. So I'm speaking to adults at this point. You know, um, it's a different conversation with, with kids. And so let me just speak to adults who are. Um, wanting to experience a high-performing life. And when I say that, you know, I've got an asterisk, like it's left to interpretation what that means. But for me, a high-performing life is I'm going to slide into home base with some scratches, some bruises, some breaks. You know, I'm going to have gone for it in life emotionally and physically and, and in business frames. And more importantly, I need, I have this need, this to to frame a high-performance life as understanding um, inner peace and wisdom and connectivity and integration. So there's a psychological and there's also like um, some evidence of a life lived well that I'm interested in. So those of us who are interested in a high-performing life, and by the way, it's a good exercise for your community to spend some time with is like, well, what is a high-performance life? Like really write it down and let that be, be a bit of a guidepost for you in the way that you line up your thoughts, your words with your actions. And for me, I don't know where to start before awareness. So building awareness about my how I'm responding to the external world is much more powerful and further upstream than trying to manipulate my external world. So I would go upstream as far as I can to increasing awareness and that is where the, one of the beautiful ancient practices of meditation and mindfulness pays dividends. That's one way it pays dividends. There's also others. And then the other I would do is define high performance. Like, what does it mean to live a good life? And then the third I would do is say, what is my purpose? And then, then from that, with great awareness, with a guidepost of what a high-performing life looks like, the animation of it, and snap to your purpose, then it's like very clear and mechanical waking up in the morning with better awareness uh, and, and intention about what a high-performance life looks like, and then setting your everything on fire to get after the purpose. And that's hard work. That's not, n- Nothing I just said there is easy. <laughs> and so it is much easier to wake out of bed and grab your phone, grab your toothbrush, you know, uh, grab some soap in the shower, grab some food quickly, and, and not attune to the inner experience, not attuned to purpose. It is much easier and much more common to do that. And so then the fourth bit that I would add to this is to wake up with some um, 
you know, your body naturally wakes up, wake your mind up, finish the job, you know, so wake that part of it up too. And so those are it. So high performance, defining it, purpose, what is it? Now that's intellectual work only. Those are two intellectual bits. And then the, um, the practice of mindfulness would be material important as an ongoing experience. And then when I wake up, I am now taking that intellectual work and putting it into practice. What does that mean? It just means dusting off like, you know, like, what am I doing today? Right. High performance life. What does it look like? Okay, good. That's just a calibration. And then my purpose is right. And then I go through my day in my mind and I I just kind of see myself living aligned uh, with those two to whatever my calendar has in front of me. So that's a long way of saying, you know, there's some work to do. (laughs) So (laughs) I apologize for the for the uh, extended narrative there. It's great. People so rarely think about what they actually want out of life. It's, it's crazy. And that to me seems to be the source of their frustration is they have never taken the time to figure out where they want to go and who they are. And once you can get those things dialed in and have at least some concept of what a high performance life is for you, then you can stop worrying about those comparisons and all those other uh, unnecessary pressures that we put ourselves on. Yeah, I think that what I've... I'll tell you a story is that... Um, I love storytelling as we talked about earlier, but <laughs> when, when our purpose is off a little bit, it makes it harder to do the hard things. So when purpose is not clear, it becomes much more difficult to have conviction when it's hard. Look, it's easy when it's easy, but when it's hard, that's where we learn about our internal resources. And so I was fortunate enough to work on a project called Red Bull Stratos, and it's where a, a an adventure athlete, an astronaut at this point um, called Felix Baumgartner was challenged. And it was an internal challenge. You know, it was an opportunity. That's a better way of saying it. An opportunity to go up 130,000 feet, be right at the edge of the stratosphere, and then be the first person to jump from that height. And about four years into the project, he had to wave his arms. And he had the brightest minds in aerospace. He had... Um, XX millions of dollars invested in the project. He had two spacesuits that were customized for him, each at about $2 million. Like this was like XX millions, exponential investment, and some incredibly bright minds in their space that were supporting him. The capsule was built, the technology was on point, the experience from the team was, was great. And there was a lot of money on the line. And so about four years in, he waved his arms. And this is all public, so I'm not sharing something as a psychologist that is not already public. And he's in the airport crying. And he says, guys, I I can't go through with it. I'm scared. And so that is where, reasonably so, I mean, the chances of success were not incredibly favorable because it's such a dangerous, hostile environment to jump from the edges of space. Even the brightest minds were not sure if he passed through the sonic experience, if his arms and his legs would make it intact. You know, so if he passes through the sonic boom. And so imagine that you've got people counting on you and you're about to go to the facility, to the office, and you call in to your partner, your boss partner, and you say, I'm terrified. I'm overwhelmed. I can't do it. And I know people's lives are counting on it. And I am, I'm overwhelmed. Well, that's happening now in modern times. We're seeing a rise in anxiety and depression and suicidality and engagement at work is 38%. 38% of people are reporting that they're engaged at work. Crazy. And so 
go back to the story. This is where they, they gave me a ring and they're like, Hey, can you, is there something that we can, you know, provide Felix to as a resource? So Felix and I did some good work. He is extraordinary. And part of that work, which again, this is public was shifted back to his purpose. So what is the purpose of this for you? And getting back realigned there is really important. And so that was part of the work. And then the second part of the work, or what are the necessary psychological skills so that you can live in alignment with that purpose? And then we built out some of those skills. And success part of the story is that it worked. Another two, three years went by, and uh, he was the first person to jump, jump from the outer space. His purpose was intact, and he forever changed um, our understanding of human capabilities. Yeah, it's incredible, isn't it? And the, the photos and videos and things that have come out of that experience are, are amazing. Thank you for, for sharing that. I think it gives a lot of people confidence knowing that some of the, the top performers in the world go through these things too. Are there any athletic performers in sort of modern times who have the mental fortitude to back up their physical abilities and simply don't need any psychological edge to perform at their best. There was recently, there was the the Michael Jordan documentary, The Last Dance, which you might've seen. Um, Athletes like Conor McGregor. I mean, these are people who were talking about visualization when he was a a plumber in Ireland. And is the question, are there extraordinary modern talents that do not need psychological training? Yeah. Are are there people who are able to deliver at their best on game day and in the most challenging and the the highest of stakes situations who simply don't need additional support for that that, uh, psychological edge? Oh, yeah. So uh, it's a good question. Um, I'll answer it as a psychologist first and then as an applied practitioner second. So um, narcissists, true narcissistic personality disorder, they they don't need any psychological skills training. Matter of fact, we know it doesn't work with them. What they need is to have the lights turned on. So the lights turn on, they know that they matter, they show up and they put on a show. And so psychological skills work doesn't, it does, it, it's the most obvious population that doesn't work with, which is interesting because there's a healthy bit of narcissism in elite sport. Now um, let's consider the rest of us. So the NPD is actually quite rare. Narc- narcissistic tendencies is more common, you know, than true NPD. Um, Michael Jordan, Conor McGregor, all the others, you know, that we could maybe put in a list, Tiger, et cetera, et cetera. They have had exposure either from parents or coaches or books or something about how to cultivate the psychological skills, whether they had a psychologist they work with or a wise man or woman, or a coach that was certainly switched on, like Phil Jackson with um, Michael Jordan. Like he was meditating before um, before anyone in pro sport was making it uh, available. So we we are community minded people. We are influenced by those around us, and nobody escapes that the psychological aspect of human performance is important. Nobody escapes that. So there's a genetic component and there is a skill development component that either comes from explicitly getting training, which is what's happening now in the modern era of sport. You know, psychology is folded into the fabric and DNA of the training. There's physical, technical, and mental training. Or wind back like 20 years, 50, 120 years ago, it was, it was people talking about psychological frameworks and breathing techniques or meditation techniques and, 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 and where, where we were, let's call it 
even well, it's even happening today. Some of the unsophisticated kind of systems, like a coach might say something or an adult might say something to a kid like, hey, go be confident now. What? (laughs) I mean, how? Tell me how. (laughs) I understand the end point. I want to be confident and feel confident. How? So that's where we are now. Like somebody says, like we know from evidence that a research, one of the most challenging things you could say to somebody is like, hey, uh, I see that you're kind of worked up. Just relax. (laughs) It's like a double dip. It's like, oh, now the world knows that I'm a mess. I've been trying to hide it from everybody. (laughs) And, And tell me how. What am I supposed to do? And if you don't front load the practice, the psychological skills practices, it, it's not there for you when you need it. You know, so, so someone says, relax, the, exam, the, the evidence would say, well, you could tweak the way you're thinking and or you can do some breathing work. But if you haven't practiced breath work, <laughs> that breathing is not going to be so effective for you right there. So um, it's, a, it's a good question that you asked. And I other than narcissists, they are doing something to strengthen their mind. Now, um, we are following good science and the science is saying, hey, there's things that you can do. And there's people highly trained in it, sports psychologists and the like, there's highly trained people. Why don't we bring them on board and see what they have you know, to offer our, our, our mission? So that's, it's an exciting time from that framework as well. With those athletes, it's it's obviously a well-documented struggle to make it to the top. For those people who are at the absolute top of their game, is maintaining that often harder than getting to the, the top in the first place? When we are chasing something and we have some evidence that we're getting closer to it, our reward system and circuitry in our brain lights up. And that reward circuitry is really important to stay in it. And so um, we can do lots of things when that reward circuitry is not quite firing correctly. You know, we can, we can make up our minds and express willpower and we can do those things. But when it's too long where the brain and um, the environment are not matching well, it's really hard. So when we're chasing something, we've got a goal, there's some attainment, there's, it's just out of reach. So it's stimulating and exciting, but, but also doable that um, it's a really important mechanism to stay in it. Then what happens once we attain it? Well, for those who don't reestablish a new goal, and I'm not a fan of goals, I'll tell you why in a minute, but those that don't reestablish the goal, it can become really problematic because now we've gone from like the signal to noise ratio being pure. The signal is clear. I know what I'm getting after. You know, I've got these clear goals. And then once you attain that goal, then it becomes a bit noisy. And so one of the things we like to do before, let's call it Olympic Games or a big contract that somebody might get in business and or in sport, is we take some time with those extraordinary performers and say, right, so what's next? Yeah, 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 you know, like, let's just assume things go really well or they don't go well. Either way, what is next for you? And so it gives this really clear mechanism to explore based on success and or not, like what will the next phase of your life look like? And so it's getting ahead of the science, which is having clarity of where you're heading toward and how you want to experience your life um, is best done in in, um, a bit of a whiteboard experience where there's a clearing mechanism as opposed to the frenzy of trying to deal with it in the midst of a performance or an outcome or whatever. And so let me, let, me, let me explain that thing about goals is that 
um, I'm much more interested in purpose. It's a higher order principle. And so when purpose is really crisp and clear, goals just become markers on the path. But purpose is something, if you follow the science of purpose, it's not necessarily attainable. It is the groove of which you move through life with because it's, it's what matters most to you. And so like if it just needs to be huge and big, and uh, let me just be more clear. The science of purpose has three arms to it. One, nobody can give you purpose. It has to matter to you. It has to have personal meaning. The second is that um, it needs to be bigger than you. So it's not something that you can accomplish on your own. And then the third is that it's down the road. It's in the future. It's like it's out there. And so those are the mechanisms of purpose. And when you get your purpose right, it is far more powerful than goals. Yeah. So let me answer this really concretely, you know, (laughs) James, is that yes, getting there is easier than staying there. I could have said that like six minutes ago. (laughs) We'll be back with the show shortly. Before we do, I've got a quick question for you. How would your life change if you had me and a handpicked team of high-level entrepreneurs working with you for not one month, not two months, but three months to take your business and brand to the next level? That's right, this February, I'm hosting my signature program, The Day One Mastermind, to help entrepreneurs like you 10X your income, influence, and impact. If you run your own business or are thinking about starting your own business, this will change your life like nothing else. I'll be sharing the exact secrets that have got me featured on more than 600 podcast, radio, and television shows, published in more than 10 languages, and connected with some of the most influential individuals and companies on the planet. Above all, I'll be showing you how to crack the code to scaling your income without scaling your workload. If you want to learn more about the Day One Mastermind and to hear from some of the people who have joined previously, go to thedayone.com, thedayone.com, or click the link in the show notes. And I mentioned a handpicked team of high-level entrepreneurs, but who are they, I hear you ask? These are people like Janine Shepard, who'll be showing you how she's amassed almost 1 billion views online. She'll also be working with you to personally book, deliver, and leverage a TED Talk of your own. There's Josh Henry Hicks, who has facilitated almost $1 billion in ad spend, helped more than 40 brands get acquired or raise their next round of funding, and worked with some of the most successful disruptor brands in the world. Josh will be showing you how to sell, scale, and stand out on social media. That's just two of the special guests, and we've got a bunch more waiting to help you, and their mission is simple, to help you 10x your income, influence, and impact. There's more than $100,000 in value throughout this mastermind, plus some epic bonuses, not to mention unlimited access to me personally for three months. You'll even get a chance to be interviewed on my top-rated Win The Day podcast. That's right, the show you're listening to right now and given a bunch of assets that you can use to grow your brand. And if there's one thing you should know about me, it's that I love going above and beyond. We're even throwing in a special one-on-one game plan session, just you and me this December, to make sure you can build some momentum before the mastermind officially begins in February and start getting you some big results as soon as possible. So if you're ready to take your business and brand to the next level and want to join my inner circle, there's no better way. Go to thedayone.com or click the link in the show notes. But you better be quick because there's only 12 spots available and applications are closing very soon. One more thing, did I mention the results are guaranteed? That's 
right. Results are guaranteed. For every single person who participates, I personally guarantee massive results or you can choose to have a full refund or I'll work with you one-on-one for free until you do. The choice is yours. You won't find a better guarantee than that anywhere on the planet and you'd never experience growth like you'll experience in the day one mastermind. Again, only 12 spots are available and applications are closing soon. Relationships have made all the difference in my life and I'm excited to give you an express path to achieving everything you want. Go to thedayone.com or click the link in the show notes. You'll be asked a few questions to make sure you're a good fit for the group and we'll go from there. All right, let's get back into the show. Morning routines is more and more popular than ever. Is it about total output for the day or what does the research say about how important the morning routine is for the top performers on the planet? I'm not sure the research is clear here yet. And it's this is more applied than not. You know, So um, I think if I were to answer your question, why is it important? Is, it, is that a fair? Yeah. Is that fair to ask? The research is not clear here. I, I am not aware of what the data would suggest for um, for pre-performance routines. However, it is a practice that many people have, including myself. And so would you like me to maybe explore like why I think it's important? Absolutely. I was going to say like that what you share in Compete to Create, which is an amazing book on Audible. You've got to go and check that out if you haven't seen that. Compete to Create, uh, amazing book. In that you share uh, in the morning the, the one deep breath, the one thought of gratitude and the one intention all before you get out of bed and then the acknowledgement of presence. I was wondering if if that, is it just the discipline of having a morning routine that makes good people great over the long term? Is it about the discipline rather than a specific practice? Yeah, I think it's um, there's some value to the content and there's some value to the structure. And you put the two together and it's probably a one plus one is you know 11. And the content for me that I'm interested in, the sciences that I would ladder to to those four steps is that a gratitude circuitry that we have in our brain is really interesting for me for a lot of reasons. It's an anecdote to anxiety. It's uh, foundational to joy, happiness, kindness, peace. You know, it's like it's a really important circuitry. So I want to at least fire it up. Uh, you know, I want I want to just kind of warm that part of the engine up, if you will. And so that's why at least one thought of gratitude, and really from my experience, is that one thought feels so good that it leads to a couple. And so it's not just like a check the box, like I'm, I'm grateful for you know the roof over my head. It's like really feel that. I, that was one of the big things I picked up on your book. There's a difference between writing gratitude versus feeling gratitude. Mm, yeah, so that's the practice. And so it's literally warming up you know, that part of the engine. And then um, the part about the intention, one clear intention for the day, it, we're just using now performance imagery. We're seeing... I'm seeing myself moving through the day with a particular groove, if you will, like a particular way that I want to um, move and behave and think. And literally, I'll go through a couple things that are important in my day, and I'm just kind of snapping in like, how do I want to be today? Oh, okay. Well, I've done that work on what a high-performance life is. I'm very clear about my virtues and my values. You know, I've got a personal philosophy that I'm working from. I know my purpose. Now, how does that show up for me today? And this is only like a 30, 60, 90 second drill minimum. 
And then if I want to extend it, that's cool. That's bonus. And so it's, again, it's waking up another circuitry. So what you actually do is probably less important than having some structure to wake up particular parts of you that you want to uh, warm up. Just like when we go to the gym, you know, we get some mobility going and some flow going before we're going to lift some heavy weights before we stress our body. You know, we do some uh, warm up mobility work. Same is true for the mind. Yeah. I love that. Uh, for people who uh, have an extremely important event coming up, maybe they're about to go and speak on stage. Uh, maybe they're running out on the field for for the Super Bowl. Maybe they're in the special forces about to get dropped in a, in a war zone, whatever it might be. Is there anything in common for those people that they can be doing in the that final five minutes before they are out there in the arena? Or is it that stage, is it too late? Uh, yeah, it's a good question because I'm not sure anything's ever too late, but like diminishing returns and optimized, you know, it would be maybe a way to look at it. Um, yeah, I will say that uh, coaches. So there's a couple of things, like uh, I'll share a story with you is that um, I'm on the field. It's uh, up at the Seattle Seahawks. I've been, I was with the team for nine seasons and phenomenal phase of my professional arc. And a coach comes up to me. This is early in my experience there. And Teams warming up. Both teams are out there. Um, you know, there's a stadium that we're in. It's about sixty-eight thousand people uh, that would sit. It's at the uh, CenturyLink, which is now the Lumen Field. And uh, there's a buzz in the area, in the arena, and the stadium um, is always sold out. But at this point, there's something like three quarters of the environment are there. So we're just kind of in the finishing touches of warming up. And one of the coaches comes out. And he says, Mike, okay, so um, what do you think? And, and, and I go, about what? <laughs> and he says, well, are you guys ready? And I'm looking at you know the 60-some men warming up and moving around. And I look up at the, the, the arena and you know the, the buzz in the air. And I look back at him and I go, I can't tell. <laughs> and he goes, well, you're the, you're the psychologist. Like, what do you mean you can't tell? And I said, yeah, you can't tell. It's not possible to tell. And uh, I said, I can, I could maybe point out a couple of things that, you know, are interesting to me, but what do you think of their framework? And he goes, well, what do you mean? And this was new in our relationship, right? <laughs> and he says, well, how about this player? Or I said, well, how about this player? And he says, well, what do you mean about this player? I said, well, what do you think of his framework? He goes, oh yeah, strong, sturdy, sturdy framework. I go, okay, let's bet on him then. <laughs> I go, uh, uh, how about this player over here? He goes, ah, I don't know about the framework over there, you know, like, and I go, right, <laughs> you know, and so maybe there's some work to do on the framework. And so what is a framework? What's a psychological framework? It's like, how do you see yourself in the world and how do you explain events to yourself and others? And when we have a sturdy framework, meaning we can bend and move, but we don't break you know, we can take a big, large earthquake and a rattle and we don't kind of fall to pieces, you know, like what is your framework like? And that is the last five minutes going into anything. That is what, where people know if their framework is true or not. And so doing that upfront work about knowing who you are and having the psychological skills to be about it, independent of what the environmental conditions are. Those are the people I want to be around. That's the human I want to be. And um, those are the ones I want to bet on, you know, with me. And so the last five minutes, what do you do if you don't have that? I, I mean, I think you're kind of in trouble. 
you're kind of in trouble. Right. You could yeah. do some breathing. You yeah. could you could do some temporary. You could do some breathing. You could smile. You could like look to somebody else for advice, which would all of those are like okay, but they're kind of weak, you know. Like when you really know your what you're about, man, it pays dividends. Yeah, it's that presence and process, isn't it, about what you're doing and, and doing all those reps behind the scenes when, when no one's watching means you can deliver on game day. Mm, yeah, and the, and the ones I'm interested in, the, the invisible ones, right? Like we see the physical ones. You've got to be physically extraordinary to be in a Fortune 50 company. I'm sorry, uh, 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 an elite, I jumped around. You've got to be physically extraordinary to be in an elite performing environment of sport. And just the same as like intellectually extraordinary to be in a Fortune 50, Fortune 100 as an entrepreneur, you know, but what are the psychological skills and what is the psychological framework that sits underneath of it? And those are the ones that it's the invisible work. And this is why I love the science, James. It's, it's invisible and it's complicated. And you know what? <laughs> if it sounds overwhelming to folks, like you don't have to boil the ocean. You can just start making maybe one small little tweak and like, you know, what can I do today a little bit better? And then could I practice that, you know, and refine it tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. And then maybe you pick up another skill that you want to work on or another framework element that you want to work on. So, you know, you don't, we don't boil the ocean. Yeah. I love all that. When it comes to finding mastery in their home, is there anything people can can focus on, whether it's relationships with spouses or just keeping the with relationship with their children or just keeping the, the household in, in good working order from all of your, all of your work? Do you mean like um, us that are the parts of our lives when we are tending to our loved ones? You know that part. Yeah, I I, I feel like now we people have their professional lives and they it's it's it, they're too they're too integrated. People are busy looking at their phones when they're playing with their kids and uh, arguments and, and it's it's it can be very very challenging for people, particularly who who have kids. From from all your work. Uh, if someone was to be an amazing member of the household, whether they're a parent or maybe even as, as a kid, what are, some, uh, what are some things that they can do or would it be entirely different from a lot of the work that you focused on? No, that's... Um, so I'm spending more of my time right now moving from best practices in elite sport into business. And the reason that it's so exciting and intriguing for me right now is because there's so much to learn from sport and so much of it is portable into where the majority of us spend most of our time, which is at work. And so I will get to the answer here because it is about recovery is where I'm going to take it. But there's a hybrid work model that's coming. The genie is out of the bottle about travel and the office and the people's need for autonomy. The genie's out of the bottle. People feel more empowered on how they organize their day and we're not going back. It's not going back. And there's good, you know, research that has pointed to that CEOs, some CEOs are missing this. They think that people want to come back and they also believe that that's what their people want. The evidence is strikingly contrary. People do not want to come back, but they want to be connected. Okay, so there's this thing happening in work and that hybrid work model means that people are at home. And so having a, a barrier, having a, um, it's not the word I'm looking for, a threshold is the word I'm looking for. Having a threshold that you walk through that is a, is a clear as possible delineation of where work and life, I'm sorry, work and home, are, are boundaries is important as a practice. And if you don't have that, there's something that you can do 
to make sure that you are almost cleansing, taking off of your, your work gear, if you will, your work mind. And so it's an important practice. And when I first started the, my psychological services practices, um, one of my mentors just kind of was an aside comment. She says, Hey, Mike, after each client, take a moment for yourself, right? Chart your notes, take a moment, maybe go to the bathroom, wash your hands, do something, you know, to, to, to kind of be regrounded. And so I took that practice and brought it into sport, which is anytime somebody's leaving practice or entering practice is to take a moment. When you put your cleats on, activate your mind to be the most dominant competitive athlete or um, colleague that you can be in sport, right? Like switch it on, cleats on. When your cleats are off, done. You know, like that part of you is now deactivated. Same holds true at home. So I will never walk into my home with my cell phone on my ear. Never is probably too big a word. Like, but the last time I've done it, it's probably been a couple decades. <laughs> okay. So like, it, it's really important that when I cross my threshold, that I am the husband and the father that I've designed from the inside out that I want to be. It's really important that we practice those. Now, the second bit to your point about this hybrid work environment is that we are not in the work world. We are not doing right by recovery science. And so when I first popped my head into big business and working with them on the psychology of being great, I couldn't believe it, James. Like, I don't know how people in business are recovering because there's no formal practice. Sleep is a mess. Stress is at all time high. Nutrition is average. You know, um, the sacrifice of home life is tremendous. And so right now, this is incredibly exciting. We're moving from I believe the extraction model to the unlocking model. And so new entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs and leaders and managers are now going to be measured in the, in the next call it decade. We'll give ourselves some space here. We're going to be measured by how well we unlock the humanness and the performative aspects of the people that are trusting us to be part of, you know, the mission that we're, we're sharing. So it's no longer extraction of how many minutes and widgets, it's more about unlocking, and that will be a new measurement for leaders. So we're moving from a manager-leader model to a coaching model. And what are we coaching? Psychological practices. And I'm not talking about doing therapy with your employees. I'm talking about the frameworks. And this is happening at scale. Big business, Fortune 50s are down this path. At scale, how do you organize best recovery practices? And how do you organize basic psychological skills? And how do you help with um, creating the space for people to have a sturdy psychological framework? And so that's it, man. I'm so excited about like what might happen if we get humanness back in work, humanity back in the place that we spend so much of our time stressing over and then compromising the relationships we, we, we have with our kids and our spouses. Forget about it. It's changing. And I'm, I'm fired up about it. Yeah, one good thing that could come out of the, the whole pandemic would be that shift. Yeah, I, I mean, it's happening, you know? And listen, like I said, the genie's out of the bottle and people are so stressed out, it's ridiculous. There's there's no real alternative here. And so that part is uh, unfortunate and exciting. Especially in LA where people are spending two hours a day in, in traffic. I mean, that alone just seems uh, horribly unproductive in the first place. Yeah. Uh, 
One last question before we move into the, the rocket round. I'm really curious to, to know your answer to this. This is a question I throw into the, the podcast sometimes. On your best day, what's an affirmation that you would write on a flashcard to show yourself on your worst day? Um, that's a cool question. So like, what is this, what's the internal narrative when I'm at my best? Well, I'll be cheeky for a moment and just say like, <laughs> I'm not really saying much to myself. At my best day, I'm not coaching myself. I'm in it. It's great. It's fluid. I'm on it. You know, so if I'm cheeky there, there's probably, it's a blank statement, you know, like, um, but if I, if I double click underneath of it and say like, what is a, what are some phrases, you know, um, you can do fucking hard things. Let's fucking go. Um, you know, you're built for this shit. Um, chill the fuck out. It's all good anyway. Uh, <laughs> hey dude, remember to smile and have some fun. Um, you know, uh, be joy period, you know, like there'd be, there'd be that kind of stuff that, that would make it for me. And yeah. if I had to reduce it to what thing, it'd be like, you do hard things. So forget about it. Like now I, I say that James and like, it might sound cheesy to somebody else. I, I don't know like what it sounds to somebody else, but like, I really, I've, I've earned it and I'm clear that I can do some hard things because I've been through some hard times. And I would bet that most of your community has been through hard things. And so having that be very clear and making a commitment to never turn your back on those hard things that you've experienced and the lessons you learned from them is a very powerful framework. There's nothing wrong with that measured confidence and faith in, in your own abilities and, and the role that you're at in your own journey. I think that's amazing. Uh, well, let's now move into... And then hold, hold on. I'll, uh, one more, one more, one more from him. If my mentor would hear, he'd look at me like kind of sideways and, <laughs> and he'd say, um, what, what are you doing right now? Like I've got him in my head right now. He goes, what, what are you talking about? He goes, <laughs> Mike, you don't matter. And that's what he would say. That should be on your thing. You don't really matter. And so I got to explain this a minute because... He, it's, it was a magical gift he gave where, he's, where one day we're, we're in a good conversation and he says, you know, Mike, you really do matter. You do matter to the people in your life. And so that, I think it's special, Mike. I was like, oh, thank you. His name's Gary. Thank you, Gary. And he says, and you don't really matter. <laughs> World's been around a long time. So, you know, so, you know, let's keep those two things in, in, in check. Okay. <laughs> and so it's like a good perspective. Like, yeah, yeah. Okay, good. That's right. Thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. I love that. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Well, let's now move into the win the day rocket round. 10 questions for some fairly quick answers. Uh, number one, what quote inspires you the most? Whew, um, right now that just came to mind is be water, my friend. Very important, especially in the times we're in. Uh, number two, morning coffee or evening wine? Uh, morning tea. Love it. Number three, what's one bit of advice you would give your 18-year-old self? It all works. Number four, what book do you gift the most? Mind Gym by Gary Mack. Number five, was there a vulnerability you once hid within that became your superpower? A fear of other people. A fear of other people's opinions. Uh, number six, what's one thing you've learned about failure? Oh, that uh, redefining failure is really important. So failure typically is like the scoreboard didn't work out or the, the, the revenue wasn't met. Um, for me, redefining it has been materially important. And I, I can tell you how I define it, but I think it's a good exercise for people to define success and failure in their life. Uh, for me, it's the uh, inability or unwillingness to go for it. Yeah, that's great. Number seven, if you could sit on a park bench and have a conversation with someone alive or dead, who would it be? 
Yeah, I, I, I like this question. Um, there's a long list, but so it would be um, spiritual leaders. And so the reason being is because more than anything, they've shaped culture, um, global culture for you know thousands of years. So I would love to sit with um, Lao Tzu, uh, the Dalai Lama, I'm sorry, Buddha and Jesus and uh, in probably reverse order. Number eight, what tool or resource best helps you run your life or your business? Tool or resource best helps me. Uh, oh, I will say flat out the, the, I'm not sure I would call it a resource, but um, the, my relationship with my wife. That's great. Number nine, share one thing on your bucket list. Ooh, um, gosh, I've got a list of life, life uh, um, adventures that I have. And so uh, 11 spiritual centers. I want to see uh, the 11 spiritual centers on my list. Um, I want to uh, feed a thousand kids, um, you know, for, um, it's kind of on, on the bucket list. Um, I want to build a home for, for a family and I want to send a, a kid to college, you know, that's outside of my family. So those are some things that um, are materially important for me. And final question, number 10, what's one thing you do to win the day? Oh God, good question. <laughs> um, I, I, I prepare myself to be in the presence of um, uh, bliss and joy. And so th- what I do to win the day is all the work ahead of time so I can be fully present with things that are amazing. And so for me, that shows up in conversations. And so how I win the day is prepare my mind to be present more often. So good. Well, there are a bunch of ways to connect with Michael. We'll link to all of these in the show notes. You can follow him on Instagram at Michael Gervais. Check out his Finding Mastery podcast and grab a copy of his awesome book, Compete to Create on Audible. Again, all of that and more will be linked in the show notes. Michael, some amazing stuff today. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Appreciate you, James. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Dr. Michael Gervais. He's an amazing guy and is doing some incredible things to shift the possibilities of human performance. I guess on the Win The Day show, they're always so generous with their time. So show Michael some love by leaving a comment on the YouTube version of this episode with your favorite takeaway. Is there a friend who needs to hear this episode or could use some help to win the day? Share it with them right now. And if you haven't already, hit subscribe so you can get access to awesome episodes like this one as soon as they are released. Win the Day with James Whitaker is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, and wherever you listen to podcasts. That's all for this episode. Remember to get out there and win the day. Until next time, find your mastery onwards and upwards always.